Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm your other host, Harless. For those of you just tuning in, welcome. For our return listeners, welcome back. The Magic Story Podcast recaps the fiction story of the card game Magic the Gathering. And Harless and I add our own bits of flavor text thrown in along the way. We've been journeying through the Lost Caverns of Ixalan, following three distinct stories as they have delved deep into the underground world of Ixalan. Today, we're going over episode five of the main story, written by Valerie Valdez. Join us as we head into the multiverse. So for a quick recap of what happened last episode, we have been following these three stories that are kind of happening in tandem. One of them follows our heroes in the Sun Empire, which is Watley, Waita, Quintorius, among others. And last episode, they had actually discovered the core. They had actually opened the door to Mazatlantli and entered a place beyond. And there's a whole civilization living in this core that... Watley kind of discovers might have distant relations to the Sun Empire. Um, there are the glyphs are similar, so they might be like distant cousins um, from an age long, long past. And while this is all happening, there is also Malcolm's story where he and his goblin companion Breaches go into the lair of the Myco Tyrant last episode. And the Myco Tyrant, as we discover, is this giant toad mushroom-like creature, and they have essentially assimilated, is the word that the Microtyrant used, the entirety of downtown. And they are using Xavier, the mayor of downtown, as kind of a mouthpiece to be able to speak to Malcolm and Breaches. And Malcolm discovers in conversing with the Microtyrant that they have goals of utter dominion, where everyone will be assimilated into this this new form, which is essentially, you know, dead inside and serving the, the micro tyrant. So that's bad, bad news that we left off with Malcolm. And then on our third story with our Dusk Legion vampires, they were they had met up with our Sun Empire friends. And when they enter the core, they aren't received with open arms. They they are called worshipers of the betrayer and they are actually in quote unquote imprisoned. They don't necessarily have prisons in the core, but they were kind of put away. They were kind of put in timeout in in separate rooms. And at the very end of last episode, Vito, our our very good guy Vito, he sends forth this shroud, this like power, this shadowy power that he has as a vampire. And he's on this tirade over the new age is upon us. And he kind of helps his his other Legion vampires escape. But at the very end of last episode, um, uh, Bartolome uh, tries to protect Amalia and Kellen because Vito wanted Kellen as the new sacrifice um, for Aklazots. And Bartolome intervenes and tries to defend them and um, actually dies in the process. So that was like super, super heartbreaking that Bartolome died last episode. Um, But Amalia and Kellen had managed to escape because Bartolome had distracted Vito. Um, and so that's where we left off last episode on a pretty massive cliffhangers from all three stories. 
And a very sad character death. I loved Bartolome. I'm yeah. really sad. Like, I think he really looked at Amalia like a daughter is kind of he what did. we found out in last episode. And it really breaks my heart that she doesn't have someone kind of looking out for her anymore. Because, I mean, clearly he really had her best interest at heart if he was willing to actually be sacrificed for her. Now, we start off today's episode with the Sun Empire. Last we'd seen them, they were being welcomed into the core by the Oltec. Stuart Akal and Chara among them. And we're behind Quint's perspective as he observes the thousand moons teach Watley, Waita, Inti, and Kaparokti to ride the bats, which is so cool, and enter what's called the Cosmium Reef, which is the trail of metal around the giant sun, which is called Chimil, that glows pink. And Waita, of course, is a natural at riding her bat, already in the air and at home up there. And Watley spends a long time cooing to her bat. It's clear she values the bond with the creature, just like her relationship with her dinosaur, Pontlaza. But eventually they all fly up to the Cosmium Reef and Quint watches with his goggles on so he can squint against the light of the sun. And Stuart Akal is with him and converses with him about where Quint is from. And Akal says here to Quint that he is like their didacts, who are scholars in the core, and Akal offers an exchange of knowledge between Quint and one of their didacts, which of course Quint is ecstatic to accept the offer. Watley is the first to return to the ground with a piece of cosmium in her hand. So basically when they sent them into the air, they were like, all right, you have to go and claim a piece of cosmium for yourself. And it's kind of like, it feels like a rite of passage here, which is very cool. So she comes back to the ground with a piece of cosmium, victorious. And Stuart Akal confirms that it's large enough to make a sword, but it's clear when Watley's proud smile drops at the mention of that, that she doesn't like the idea of making a weapon. She actually wanted a necklace. <laughs> and I just love that. I really related to Watley here. I'm like, I don't want a sword. I, I want a necklace. I wanted a necklace. <laughs> like, I <Yeah. laughs> I totally related to Watley, too. I was like, I was all excited for her that she was going to get a Cosmium necklace. And then yeah. Akal said, oh, it's almost big enough to make a sword. And Watley just doesn't smile anymore. And she's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. It's like, she doesn't want to use it for war and for violence. She wants to use it as a piece of beauty. And I, I respect that. Now, I know we've glimpsed who Watley is several times now, ever since we first saw her on this podcast during the Phyrexian invasion, and she called forth the elder dinosaurs to their aid. We see time and time again what it truly means to be a warrior poet of Ixalan. And for Watley, it always seems like the warrior part is only out of necessity as opposed to want. The poet part of her leadership and drive for peace and prosperity between her people is definitely the core of who Watley is. And I find that aspect of her to be so much more powerful and also so much more effective. Yeah, and we've gotten to know Watley a bit better this season, but she's also been sharing the spotlight with her fellow story narrators like Amalia and Malcolm and Quint and Waita. So I'm glad we're spending a moment to talk about her here. I also really quickly want to talk about a card in the set in the Lost Caverns of Ixalan called Oltec Cloud Guard. It's a white human creature card where its art depicts the scene Quint just witnessed of the bat riders going up into the Cosmium Reef to pluck a piece from it, like kind of like a trophy. Apparently, it's a rite of passage in Oltec culture that signals a young warrior is ready to join the Thousand Moons. And in the art, you can see an Oltec bat rider, which is pretty cool. And the flavor text, too, it says... 
Many old tech youth dream of one day joining the elite bat riding cavalry of the Thousand Moons military force. It's amazing seeing story moments and lore translated onto cards like this. And Magic just has so many gems like this, like thousands and thousands of cards throughout its history that all tell a story. The cards we make are the game itself, of course, but what's always endeared me to Magic are the stories behind the cards, too. Hence why Natalie and I started this podcast earlier this year, obviously. But anyway, back to the story. That's why we're here. So Waito follows Watley down to the surface, but she doesn't land. Instead, she whistles out a warning of something she sees. The brow over her visible eye was furrowed, her mouth set in a grim line that mirrored the tension in her shoulders. There, Waito said with deliberate calm, pointing toward the far end of the garrison across the valley. The vampires have summoned a cloud of their cursed fog, bigger than usual. Quint didn't know what that meant, but the rest of the Sun Empire faction tensed. You're sure? Kaparokti asked. Waita nodded. A few warriors from the Thousand Moons approached them then, and with them they have two prisoners. So the warriors report that these two, these two prisoners, were escaping the garrison, but the man, who Quint had mistaken for an elf, rebuttals, saying they were just trying to find help. And this is when the girl vampires spoke up, introducing themselves to the group. As we know, this is Amalia and Kellen. The other vampires, they, they killed our human servants and the queen's emissary, then escaped. They're looking for Aklazots. The betrayer, Anim asked, recoiling with shock. He's been imprisoned for ages. Do you know where he is? Amalia asked. Stuart Akal paled and clutched her staff more tightly. No, but some among the Oltec still worship him, and they may have passed this knowledge down. She looked toward the sun, closing her eyes. If the vampires find these allies, they may at last be powerful enough to release the Bat God from this prison. No one in the Corps will be safe from his unending bloodthirst. Just what we need, Quint thought. A violent god trying to kill everyone for fun. And so we switch now back to Malcolm. We'd last seen him as he had stumbled into the Mycotyrant's lair. Um, stumbled or was led by a series of sentient fungus that created words to lure him there, right? So he was kind of lured instead of, you know what I mean? Like he was really yeah. tricked into coming down there. It was definitely a trick. Um, and he's he's making small talk with increasing foreboding that he and Breaches were about to be, quote unquote, assimilated into this fungal colony, like what happened to the residents of downtown. And the micro tyrant is still using Xavier as a mouthpiece, but they have run out of patience for small talk and commands its forces to bring Malcolm and Breaches into the fold. And this is when Breaches turns to Malcolm and asks, Big Boom? Oh, does he want to? Does he want to explode something? Is, breaches? What? That's so shocking! He's, how many times has he asked this same question to Malcolm? I I really so hope. Many. I really hope between now and the end of this season, breaches does get to make a big boom. I want him. He to really be able deserves to make, it. He deserves it. He wants it so bad. <laughs> I want to see him have it. <laughs> but unfortunately, I'm very sorry, breaches. But Malcolm has another idea. He sensed a tunnel just beyond the micro tyrant's giant toad-like body across this cavern, and through that tunnel is water. And he knows it's their only hope of escape, since the route backward and up the elevators is crowded by the micro tyrant's horde. Also, oh my god, that's just too many elevators to have to go back up. Yeah, right? no kidding. <laughs> uh, 
So right here, Malcolm tells Breaches to plug his ears, and then he begins to sing again. His siren song captivates the mycotyrant horde and enables Malcolm and Breaches to walk through the crowd toward the tunnel. Malcolm notes to himself as he sings that it's possible the mycotyrant is the heart of this hive mind, so to speak, because he seems to influence the horde. And Malcolm is hoping that his song is powerful enough to let them escape, like, fully down the tunnel. But no such luck. They maybe make it a few steps into it, and then all of a sudden, a hideous, mini-mouthed scream echoed behind them. Run, Malcolm shouts, and they take off down the tunnel in a full-on sprint. And then this tunnel abruptly stops along a cliff edge, and before them is a massive, like, ocean, like, huge body of water. And below, along the surface, is a gilded city with merfolk, the river heralds, going about their business. Some notice Malcolm and Breaches up on this cliff, but most are just perusing the streets and the ocean, oblivious to the danger that is tearing up behind them from the tunnel. Malcolm uses his magic to project his voice across the whole city. Incoming, he warns. And then Malcolm and Breaches dive into the water below, swimming for their lives as the mushroom horde bursts from the tunnel, and it seems from every orifice of the cave system, descending into the city. And this is from the story. The mycotyrant's forces erupted from the tunnel. Malcolm finally risked a glance backwards. It seemed every infected resident of downtown dogged his heels, tumbling onto the beach or splashing awkwardly into the water. Their numbers were dwarfed by half-decayed dinosaurs and cat people and those creepy walking mushrooms, some wielding weapons while others gathered magic to themselves. Worse, holes in the roof of the cavern spouted flying creatures, dinosaurs and giant bats so encrusted with fungus they struggled to stay aloft. The chaos of battle destroyed any serenity the place had enjoyed. Merfolk drew weapons, activated the enchantments in their armor, pulled out jade totems, and summoned huge elemental creatures to repel the fungal invasion. Walking bonfires flung gouts of flame, while hulking water spouts knocked foes from the air, sending them tumbling end over end to their dooms. And during all of this chaos, Malcolm notices the giant pyramid inside the city, where a great golden door is open and leads to open sky? And his instincts, his siren instincts, tell him it's the escape, a way out, if only he could reach it. And this is when Nikan Sil approaches them, asking, what evil have you brought to our shores? Malcolm explains the mycotyrant, how its influence spreads to others and turns them into mushroom people. Nikan Sil confirms that this must be the threat the Sun Empire had talked about and that they need to warn the others inside the core. If warning them meant escaping through that door... Malcolm was ready to oblige. Come on, he told Breaches. Let's go sound the alarm. Breaches bared his teeth in assent as he drew his three swords, one for each hand and one with his tail, and together they traversed the battlefield, dodging combatants as Malcolm aimed unerringly for the promise of open skies. Okay, so before we switch perspectives again, I want to talk quickly about another card. So Malcolm noticed the great golden door that leads to the core atop the pyramid, and it's actually portrayed beautifully on a card. It's called Matsalantli, the Great Door, and it's a legendary artifact card. The gilded, colorful gateway hidden deep inside the cave is just exquisitely done in this art with these massive steps that seem to ride up into a doorway of pure sunlight, god rays lighting the path. 
the architecture really puts it into perspective of how big it is too, because there are two river heralds guarding the entrance and they look really small in comparison to the door. And I think my favorite part about this art are like the ring-like patterns in the gateway. And there's the central, like the biggest one, but then there are two on either sides of it. And from the center of this ring, waterfalls just pour through the ring. It's just a really cool visual. And like Michael Tyrant aside, I would love to see this pyramid door myself down down deep into the underground of, of Ixalan. Oh, no kidding. Me too. That would be amazing. But anyway, we switch back to our old friend, Vito. Friends, okay, <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> well, obviously not a friend, but we've said many times before, Vito is, I mean, he's a well-crafted villain, right? But my goodness, every action he takes makes my blood boil. And his section starts with a familiar call. Come to me. The voice of Aklazots called DeVito more clearly than ever. And he leads the vampires through the fog, believing in his chosen path more so than ever as none dared to stop them. And he assumed that this is the work of Aklazots, keeping them hidden. They kept walking, Vito following Aklazot's voice, and soon, from amidst the dark veil, others stepped forward to meet them. They have glowing red eyes, bearing reddish-pink cosmium crystals on their person. And these are the Cosmium Eaters. Also, that name, Cosmium Eaters, Ugh. just sent chills. Like It's just like, I don't want to know. These are worshippers of Aklazot's, the, the friends like the the friends of Aklazots that the steward had mentioned before um, that still worships the ba- the bat god and so they come up and they lead Vito and the vampires a long ways they pass through a murky sort of swamp and then they enter a cave and it's a really unassuming very dull cave with no wealth or really any glory associated with it and Vito remarks that this is no place fit for a god, and that Vito will erect proper temples to worship him. The Cosmium Eaters tell Vito and the others that in this cave is where Aklazots is imprisoned. And Vito is taken aback by that. He hadn't fully realized that Aklazots was quite literally in chains. And the group walked all the way to the end of this tunnel at the back of this cave, and it is blocked by an immense door. One of the Cosmium Eaters hands Vito a Cosmium Crystal, and it's glowing red, and he said, This is the key. Place it inside to be marked as worthy, or be destroyed. And not doubting for a second his worthiness in the eyes of Aklazots, Vito takes the key and places it in the receptacle. The inner workings of the door's lock clamps down on his arm and drains him of his strength, as if Aklazots was beating on his blood. It nearly buckles Vito's knees, but he remains standing and strong for his god. Eventually, the clamps release him and the doors open. Well, I'll give Vito this. He's determined. So Vito, the other vampires, and the Cosmium Eaters enter the chamber beyond. Carved glyphs in the walls bathed the assembled crowds in blood-red light, and a thousand pale faces turned to watch Vito enter. He lifted the lance of Tarion higher, descending to meet his fate, to reach the figure at the center of the room. Come to me, said the voice, as familiar to Vito now as his own name, Aklazots. And here, we actually get to see Aklazots himself for the first time. And Vito is awed and humbled by the might of the bat god in front of him. And I'll admit, 
I am too. So Aklazots is a giant bat. And for everyone listening, I'm going to do my best to describe him. So imagine a massive gargoyle-like creature that can dwarf a whole pyramid. So pretty big. Multiple sets of leathery wings. That's right. Multiple sets that end in claws. He has a bat-like face with huge pointed ears, fangs like daggers, and one gleaming red eye. The other is dark. He has a card in the main set called Aklazot's Deepest Betrayal, and we can see him perched atop a pyramid shrouded in darkness and surrounded by colonies of smaller bats in the burning sky. His alternate art card in what's called the Gods of Ixalan frame is a gilded relief version of his face, and it is just so beautiful and really unnerving to look at. Like, it's one of those things where you like, you want to keep looking at it because the more you look at it, the more you kind of like see in it, but it also becomes more and more disturbing the longer you look at it. And it's all carved in gold with runic wings spread out on either side of his face and one red eye. Looking at this card, I can't tell if I just really, really want a necklace with the pendant of Aklazots on the end or whether that would just scare me. I I know (laughs) I'm kind of torn because it's that beautiful. It really is. But Wow, I I don't think I could look at it. <laughs> like it's like you you can't look away, but also looking at it kind of makes you scared. Um, so that's just the that's just the eminence. Um, anyway, I'll read this next part from the story because it's pretty cool. The bat god crouched on the floor, shrouded by his wings and wrapped in loops of thick golden chains inlaid with hundreds of pink crystals. His body was the brown of old dried blood. Wings gilded and tattered where they brushed the stone beneath him. A collar of skulls hung from his neck, and a black and gold crown adorned his head, proclaiming his godhood to any who gazed upon him. A single red eye pierced Vito with the strength of its regard, and he fell to his knees in worship. My master, Vito murmured, voice thick with emotion, I have come. And Aklazot says here that his slumber was disturbed by the invaders from the surface and that the dawn of the sixth age, whatever that means, is upon them. Aklazot demands a wave of sacrifices and a whole group of victims were ushered forward so that Aklazot can feast on them. With every death, the baleful eye of the god brightened, a beacon in the dim room. And then it was done. Aklazots huddled in on himself. Then, with a piercing scream, he rose and strained against his bonds. The pink crystals in the chains flickered madly, then dulled to the same red as the god's eye. A concussive burst of magic struck everyone in the room as the gold links snapped in a dozen places. With a mighty shrug, Aklazots sent the chains scattering across the floor. He lifted himself to his full height and stretched his wings, and Vito fell to his knees again in awe. Come to me, Aklazots intoned. Receive my blessing. And Vito reached the god first, prostrating himself. I am worthy, he said. Of course he did. Of course he says, I am worthy. Not like, hi, I released you. Do you need any water? (laughs) Right? I am worthy. I am worthy. (laughs) That's very Vito, though. That is very Vito. so Vito. All right. So Vito steps forward to receive Aklazots' blessing. And the bat god bears his fangs and delves them into Vito's neck. Vito describes the pain of those giant fangs piercing his body as a fire beyond anything blood had ever ignited in his veins. 
Muscles spasmed and bones cracked and reformed, black spots dancing across his vision as unconsciousness threatened to claim him. And when Akazats drew back to allow his magic to work on Vito, the Bat God does the same to Vito's other vampire companions, and they all transform to take the shape and power in the image of their god, wings and giant fangs and all. So when you see the card canonized in blood, which is a black enchantment, that is what's happening to Vito in the art. The power of Aklazots is transforming into a bat-like, ultra-powerful creature. The other vampires, including Clavelinho, have also been transformed by Aklazots. And now, together as a colony, they fly from the cave and follow their god into the skies of the core, heading for Chimil, the sun-like orb. Aklazots hovered his eye once again flaring as he turned his gaze to the light. Chimil, he whispered, addressing the core's shining sun. As I was consigned to my prison, so shall you be. I will consume your precious Oltec as I did their ancestors, as I consumed your feeble god spawn to close the veil between death and life. I will end the fifth age at last, and my children will bring the sixth age to the world. And using his massive power, Aklazots begins to close the metal pieces around Chimil, plummeting the core into an all-consuming darkness. Being bats, Vito and Aklazots and the others relish in the shadows, being able to see and navigate just fine. And you can see this very event happening in the card Malicious Eclipse, a black sorcery, where Aklazots is pulling the bits of metal around Chimil with his massive multiple wings. And the flavor text on this card reads, Aklazots laughed as the dark shards closed around Chimil, plunging the core into unnatural darkness. At long last, his bloody reign will begin. Which, okay. Not, not good. This, right? like, this is not good. This is not, not good. good. No. So Aklazots lets out a harsh gasp and falls to the ground. And when Vito flies over to check on him, the Bat God declares that he needs more sacrifices to refuel his power. And Vito just immediately agrees, it will be done. He doesn't care. He does not care that this is human sacrifice. He does not care. He has never cared. He has never cared. Yeah. Not at all. So we switch to White's perspective here as the Oltec, the Thousand Moons, and our fellow friends from the Sun Empire watch Timil be imprisoned once more by Aklazats. The war against the Phyrexians had been like this day suddenly turning to night as the enemy blotted out the sun. The screams of her allies, her friends, turned to sobs, pleas, prayers, then cut off. The wave of memories crested as she rode it like a ship in a storm, trying not to capsize. Watley glided up to her, riding her own bat, her shard of the threefold sun illuminating her face as it had in the darkest caverns. Breathe, little warrior, Watley shouted. Victory will be ours this day. Let me take that back. She's shouting. Yep. Yeah. Breathe, little warrior, Watley shouted. Victory will be ours this day. Was it day anymore? It didn't matter. The sentiment held, even if she'd heard it uttered by so many who wouldn't live to see another hour. Chimil's prison is being remade, the flight leader shouted from her mount. We must stop the betrayer Aklazots, or Chimil will be sealed inside again. Waita didn't want another war. Not with a so-called god, not with the sun-forsaken vampires, not with anyone. But she would fight this battle, the one before her, the one forced on her, and she would win. So the Bat Riders of the Thousand Moons and our four heroes from the Sun Empire, Watli, Waita, Inti, and Kaparakti, 
take up arms against the Bat Legion and Aklazots. Watley's familiar warrior resoluteness returns, which Inti kind of makes a joke about, there's the warrior poet we know and love. And after reciting a poem for the forces of the threefold sun, the shards of which on their armor glow in the darkness, they charge towards Aklazot's vanguard in the sky. The warriors of the Thousand Moons had their cosmium headpieces and armor also glowing in the darkness, flickers of light like stars amidst the closing abyss. Waita even remarks the image would have been beautiful had the blood of her enemies and comrades not been joining the cloud. Waita dispatches one of the Legion bats by slicing at its wing, sending it to the ground. Nearby, Watley chased a pair of cosmium eater bats, while one of the thousand moons fought a creature with a tall, familiar-looking lance. Waita moved to flank, but another vampire bore down on her. She banged her bat sideways to avoid his sword, then barely missed another attack from her blind side. With an annoyed grunt, she pulled her mount upward to survey the battle from above. The swirls of the Cosmium Reef floated around her, drifts of crystals small as drops of rain. So it would always be, she thought. Blood in the sky, blood on stone, blood in rivers and in the foam on the sea. Uh, being a little poetic there, Waita, sounds like your goals might not be too far off of being right? a warrior poet. Right, I'm proud of her. I know. I love Waita. I love Waita. She's I, so she's cool. She's so um, powerful. She's so devoted. She's so unafraid. She's She, she sees, is, but she can it, look past it. Yeah, exactly. Like, she's not afraid because of ignorance. Like, yes. some people are like, I'm not afraid because I'm big and bad, or I'm not afraid because I could, I could crush you. She's not afraid because she understands the horror of everything and decides to confront it head on. And I just love that about her. Me too. So this is when a beam of light pierces through the battle coming from the golden door of Matsalantli. And Waita saw another flyer rush through, but it's not a bat. This has wings of bright white feathers. And Waita recognizes immediately who it is. It is Malcolm. And lore bit for our listeners out there, in case you missed it, Waita was with the Brazen Coalition before serving the Sun Empire. So we're guessing this is how she knows Malcolm. But of course, we know what is chasing Malcolm through that door. And the fungal creatures pour into the core in what's described as a wave of greenish black. And Waita mutters to herself, it always rains when it's wet. So right here, we switch back to Malcolm. He flies straight towards the faded light of Chimil, but he describes the open air as not the bomb he was hoping for. What was worse, there was already a battle happening in here. Malcolm struggled to catch up. He sees warriors mounted on bats fighting against bat people in the sky. Okay, one second. Just poor Malcolm. Poor Malcolm has run into the worst of the worst in this dang tunnel, right? Like he ran into a zombie dinosaur and then had to like run away from that. He ran into the mycotyrant itself. He ran into the zombified kind of like the fungalized, whatever we want to call that versions of all of the people he was searching for and now he's just like cool flying bats got it let's go (laughs) Uh, a a giant battle in the sky where people riding on bats are fighting against bat like people that i can't like for for malcolm to like catch up here i can't imagine what that must be like for him to be like what is going on (laughs) like imagine you like fly in you're looking down and you're surveying the field 
And you're just like, okay, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, what? What am I seeing? Yeah. Like, but I think for uh, Malcolm having seen so much, he's like, I, I, I'm just going to roll with it. I've seen worse. He's just accepted it at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he turns and confirms that Breaches is holding his own down on the ground. And he is with his three blades, two in each hand and one grip by his tail. But Malcolm realizes that soon Breaches will be outmatched by the mushroom horde if Malcolm doesn't find help. So this is when he spots Waita in the chaos, and they fly towards each other. Waita, Malcolm said, relieved. What is going on here? Let me explain, Waita said, then paused. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. The vampires have transformed into bat monsters, and their god imprisoned the sun. You? A giant mushroom is infecting people and turning them into its puppet so it can take over the world. (laughs) Sorry, I'm trying really hard not to laugh. (laughs) It's so good because, like, they're both just like, yep, this is our situation. Here we go. This is the reality. Yep, yeah. Waita snorted. It'll have to get in line. Do you think it could infect a god? Let's not find out, Malcolm said, his feathers rippling with unease. So they fly down to the ground, and Malcolm gets disorientated by this sloped kind of circular spherical landscape, and they meet up with Quint and Stuart a call. They quickly explain everything that was happening, and a call sends out a call for more forces, whatever can be spared to help fight against both the Legion of Aklazots in the sky and the Mycotyrant forces on the ground. The relief of reinforcement is short-lived, though, because Malcolm remembers breaches, fighting off the Horde all by himself. He turns to Waita and asks if she can give someone a ride. So again, we switch perspectives back to our good old friend Vito, fighting away in his bat form and all drenched in glory and pride to fight alongside his god. Right? Of course. Like, this is the moment he's been waiting for. This is him proving to his god that he's worthy. I can tell you I'm worthy. I can pass your test, but now I'll really show you. It's kind of the vibe that I get from him here. And the Thousand Moon Warriors are being annihilated as well as sacrificed for Aklazot. So every time they take out someone from the Sun Empire, from the Thousand Moons, that person is considered a sacrifice to Aklazot's. And he gains more power. And the initial lines of the battle have given way to a frenzied melee. In the cover of darkness, the advantage is clearly for the Legion of Vampires and those who had been transformed by Aklazots. But there are beams of light that stand out, powerful against them. One such warrior is Inti, the glowing light of the threefold sun blinding Vito when he and Clavileño try to ambush him on his bat mount. But then Vito drives his lance through the bat's skull, and Inti, with his mount now plummeting toward the ground, is vulnerable as he tries to save himself from the fall. And Clavileño uses this opportunity to swoop in, grab Inti's head with one claw, murmur, glory to Aklazots, and snap his neck. No, Inti! I know. I had to set my pages down when I read this because I was so upset. Inti has been... He's a source of humor. He's a source of love for Watley. Like, I don't, I think that it's so, it's never like outright said, but it's so heavily implied that he is such a beacon of love and hope and a really like a symbol of why she is a warrior poet, why that warrior part of warrior poet exists, because people like Inti, her cousin, are worth like sacrificing things for are worth going to war for it is worth it to protect these people and to lose inti oh 
I mean, we just hear Watley scream his name across the battlefield, which is makes it so much more brutal. I mean, she's just devastated and she swoops in immediately and tries to catch his body as he falls. And Beto, he just smiles and begins to fly after her because he thinks there's another one in my sights. I'm going to keep on getting the glory for Aklazats. Now I can take Watley out. And we're left on this last line for our episode. She too would make an excellent sacrifice. So he's planning on sacrificing Watley to Aklazats. Yeah. No. Oh man. I'm like, I'm I'm with you, Harless. The last couple of pages of this episode, I had to walk away from, like, especially after seeing Inti fall, like, like his neck was snapped by in the middle of the sky by Clavelino. I just, I was so devastated I was so devastated. I mean, we've been following Inti for as long as we have been following Watley on this yeah. on this podcast, you know, and, you know, Inti was right there beside Watley as she was calling forth the elder dinosaurs back during the Phyrexian invasion. I mean, Watley and Inti are, you know, basically siblings, like they're cousins, but they're as close as brother or sister. And to lose Inti in, oh, like I just... My heart broke. It it really did break because this is a devastating loss. Like we lost Bartolome last episode Ugh. and then to lose Inti this episode, I'm just like, I'm devastated. Inti just, he really was like a beam of light in the darkness in the way that he used his humor and the way that he could make fun of Watley in a loving way that probably made her feel more human instead of this like the warrior poet Watley she felt like I'm just Watley when she was around E.T. is kind of what I got from it. And I, oh, it's just so devastating to see that gone for her because it probably was a huge release and a relief for her to have him around. You could tell like her personality was different when he was around. And now mm. now he's gone. And I'm 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 with you, Natalie. I'm gutted. I'm devastated. It's so sad. Well, I can tell we're getting close to a finale. I can almost taste it. This is intense. But I suppose we'll have to wait until next time for the very last story of The Lost Caverns of Ixalan. Yep. The finale for Lost Caverns of Ixalan is right around the corner next week. How all of this ends and how our characters are going to face their final challenge. We're just going to have to wait and see how all this pans out. If you want to check out this story for yourself, you can do so at mtgstory.com. Also... There is an audiobook version narrated by our very own internal wizards. You can find those at the top of the page of each episode. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did. We oh, we're loving Ixalan. We are. We, you know, we were talking about before we started recording. We had a whole 30 minute conversation (laughs) about how much we love (laughs) Lost Caverns of Ixalan. This story is just so, so amazing. And if you did enjoy today's episode, please go leave us a review. It really means the world to us. We read every single comment. And for all of you who have already left us a review, thank you. Thank you so much. Y'all are seriously awesome. I mean, you guys are our beaming light in a dark day sometimes when we read those comments. So just thank you guys so much. We will see you next time. But until then, have have a magical magical day. day.